Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they overcame that struggle in their life. My guest today is Darren Blonsky. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Sonoma Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor in Sonoma, California. Darren, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here. So Darren has a Master of Arts in Psychology. He's earned his CFP designation as well as his Certified Retirement Planner Specialist, Certified Retirement Planning Counselor, and Accredited Asset Management Specialist designations. He's done all of this while also running his own wealth management firm and struggling with dyslexia, a learning disability that impacts a person's ability to read. The disability affects some 20% of the population. It's uh, the most common of all neurocognitive disorders. But contrary to what some people may believe, it's uh, some of the best and brightest minds struggle to read. People with dyslexia tend to be very fast and creative thinkers. And it's no wonder some of the most innovative people in the country, including Charles Schwab from our industry, Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg, are dyslexic. Um, so, I mean, Darren, for you, uh, you know, podcasts are a little slow. Uh, you know, we try to talk slow, but, um, you know, for you, you're, you're, you're fast, creative thinker, um, but it, it hasn't been an easy road for you. Uh, learning and going to school has always been a roadblock for you. Um, so I, to start out, can you educate us, our audience here on how dyslexia affects the brain, you know, and what are, what are some of the misconceptions that we should know about it? Yeah, I think it's really important to first point out that dyslexia is a big word that covers a lot of uh, learning disabilities that pop up throughout the population. And a lot of people think like, oh, you're dyslexic, you must flip, you know, the, uh, the letters around or the words around. That's not necessarily always true. Generally speaking, dyslexia is some type of challenge around phonemic awareness, right? It's the ability to look at a, a letter and sound it out. It's the ability to um, decode a word when you're reading it. You know, most people when they're reading, they read pretty smoothly and fluently and comfortably. For someone who's dyslexic, it takes a lot of work to read because we have to decode a word in a different part of our brain than perhaps someone who's not dyslexic. So really, it, mm. it has nothing to do with intelligence, which I think is the first misconception that I struggled a lot with as a child. 
but really has to do with a different processing pathway in the brain. And so you have to learn to process a little bit different. We'll dive into that in a minute. But um, I think that's the biggest misconception is that people um, don't understand and haven't understood until recently in the last, you know, I'd say 20 years really understood the disease. I don't want to call it disease because I really call it more an ability because it it does bring Mm. gifts with it. It just brings also with it some challenges. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like with dyslexia. I mean, I know, um, you know, when, when you're a child and you're in class, you're learning to read and, you know, the teacher calls on you, right, to read aloud, um, that, that can cause a lot of anxiety for people with dyslexia, right? Yeah, I literally have a, a picture in my mind of, I, I forget what grade it was in, but, you know, somewhere, let's call it the third grade, sitting there in a seat and having the teacher, you know, say, okay, now it's your time to read a sentence out loud. And, and just this panic inside of me, knowing that it was coming to me and that I was likely going to stumble. I was going to give pause because I was going to have to struggle decoding the word. And, you know, mm-hmm. having my peer group around me going, gosh, this kid's dumb. And you know how kids are. They can be just brutal, right? So Absolutely. it's, um, there was that panic. And to this day, I can look back in that feeling and know exactly where I was sitting. And then, then once the teacher's starting to recognize it, hey, there's something not clicking here with this child and, and being pulled out of classroom on a regular basis to get help and assistance. And oddly enough, my, um, my teacher, the, the person who helped me and tested me as a child to figure out that I was actually dyslexic, uh, she's still really good friends with my mom, uh, Gail. And so we, mm-hmm. we talk from time to time. But, but I just remember vividly that, that fear, that anxiety that says, wow, I, I'm not going to be able to read like the rest of these kids and I'm going to feel stupid and I'm going to feel ostracized by my peer group. Yeah. And did they actually know what it was at that time when you were a child? Did they diagnose it? I think on the edges, it was more diagnosed. Uh, okay. The One of the ways that you can really tell someone is dyslexic is that you can give them a test. Um, one of the most common tests uh, that they give children now is something called the Woodcock Reading Mastery Test. It's one of a battery of tests that they use to what you're trying to do is show a difference between someone's processing capabilities, so their intelligence, and then their ability to decode words, understand words, make sense of words, put sentences together, construct them. And what you see with a dyslexic person is because there's a phonemic challenge there, their ability to decode the word or you look at sentence structures going to be very low it's going to show up in you know the 10th percentile i think when i was finally again tested in college i was my reading comprehension level was at the ninth percentile so here i am at uc davis one of the top schools in the country made my way into school and just couldn't keep up with the reading and then i got tested by an educational psychologist at the that point and she's like look your reading comprehension's in the ninth percentile but your intelligence is there like you can do this like you this you're with mm-hmm. your group uh but you're not able to really process these words in a rapid way and and that's a hallmark sign of a, a dyslexic person because of that disconnect between their 
reading comprehension and their intelligence. And that's usually when they'll diagnose it and say, okay, this, this is dyslexia. When I was a child, I don't think the lines were that clear. They didn't understand it fully. They just knew, hey, something was going on. We'll group this child with a bunch of other kids who seem to struggle too for whatever reason they're struggling for. Gotcha. And you, you at some point, you didn't like being set apart from everyone else, right? Yeah, I mean, you just think a little kid and you're, you're set off and said, okay, well, you're different. You do things differently. And all you know as a kid is that you're different. You know, you don't really recognize that, oh, no, you're, you're still just as smart as the other kids. You just got some other a way of processing going on. And that was really difficult. And I think early on took a, a shot at my ego, took a shot at my self-confidence and, uh, you know, set me down a path where I really had to wrestle through that and figure that out for myself. Yeah, and how did it affect your social life as a kid? You know, I don't I don't know that it necessarily ended up impacting my social life. I was, you know, a pretty social kid. Uh, it made me very nervous in a scholastic setting, made me uncomfortable in a scholastic setting. But also it, it forced me to leverage and find other ways to communicate and to uh, get my, uh, I guess, social needs met. I didn't rely on schooling to be the path in which I was going to be the shining star. Mm. Yeah. And so I know, tell me about middle school and high school. What were those like for you? And I know you, um, you know, those seemed a little bit easier for you to get through school during those years. Well, it was a little bit different. So it, so in my elementary school, um, I, I went to a all year round kind of not a completely untraditional school, but definitely more open to different modalities of learning. Uh, so that helped me a little bit when I was um, younger, but they definitely would send me off. And it, I think when I got to the third grade, I just told my parents and my teacher. So it was shortly after that time I was tested that I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. I'm not going to these special classes. I'm not dealing with this. Mm-hmm. And I just pushed because I didn't like that social kind of ostracization that I was feeling uh, at the time. Didn't obviously have the um, mind ability or comprehension to understand what was going on from an emotional intelligence standpoint, but just said I didn't want any part of that. Didn't feel right. Didn't feel good. And then I got through middle school, got into some trouble in middle school, kind of always did well because I always had a a drive, but I always just had to work really, really, really hard um, at things that other peers of mine found very easy to right. uh, do. And uh, so because of my work ethic, for whatever reason, I was given a really strong work ethic at a young age. And I just started cracking down and, and developed that work ethic that got me through and ultimately helped me work through uh, the dyslexia so that I could use it for a strength for myself. So middle school was kind of rough for me. And then I got into high school and in high school and in uh, middle school, to some degree, some of your grade is more dependent upon your ability to, I don't want to say be a teacher's pet by that, because I certainly was not that, Mm -hmm. but just, you know, there's, there's more, the teacher gets to know you and they know the effort you put in. And I would take advantage of the tutorials and the time I had to learn. And I think teachers saw me putting that effort in and gave me the benefit of the doubt. A lot of times Mm. that certainly helped my grades, um, in middle school and high school. But when I got to college, the teachers, they don't know you from Madam. So, you know, you get what you get regardless if they think you're working hard and 
then that really started to show up in my grades. And I remember this one instance where I was studying for a site. It was psychology one. This is when I finally had that moment mm-hmm. of like, okay, I need some help. This isn't working. And I studied for at least 10 hours for this pretty minor midterm. And then this uh, lady who was on my floor in uh, the dorms didn't study at all until the night before. And her name was Lauren and Lauren came to me and she's like, Hey, I need some help studying. And, and I helped her and kind of tutored her through that. And we took the test and I got a D on the test and she got an A and I'm mm. like, all right, I knew this stuff cold going into this test. Like this, like what's going on. So at that point, then I reengaged my mom and my mom always has been a huge supporter. And, you know, I said, I got to do something like this isn't, this just isn't firing, right? This isn't working. I'm putting the time in, but it's not happening. And so we went to the, my mom had me go to the school and talk to the educational psychologist at the school. And I was referred out to, um, a lady by the last name of Grimes who then tested me. And that's when they were like, Hey, I mean, you're really dyslexic. Like you've, your reading comprehension is really low. And in college, when you've got to just read just tons of information, there's just no way to keep up. Right. And at that time, yeah. audible wasn't really a big deal. They really hadn't brought things online where you, things could get read to you. You could do that, but it was just very difficult to go through that process. Nowadays, it's much easier, uh, to consume via, you know, listening to something versus reading it. Yeah. I mean, college is all reading. Yeah. So I guess what happened after you found out you got, uh, had it, you know, when you got tested, how did that sort of change your life or your outlook? You know, it sent me on kind of, you know, the, it forced me to kind of go deep inside and deal with a lot of deep emotional wounds I had, I think, from growing up and feeling stupid, right? And, mm. you know, I worked hard and got good grades, but also on some levels had this deep underlining sense that I was stupid because I couldn't read um, like the other kids could read. And I actually took some time off from school after getting tested and um, really spent time kind of rewiring my brain, for lack of a better terms, you uh, and went back to school two years later and then started doing really well and getting A's and B's in class and kind of figured out how to work with myself in that environment and be successful. Uh, but it always, those A's and B's were hard, hard fought A's and B's. Uh, sure. and it's hard enough you know, that, in college. Yeah. So it got pretty exhausting and I was ready to get out after that was done. <laughs> Who, who's the, the mascot at Davis? We're Aggies. Yeah, right, Aggies. Aggies, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but that's interesting, right? You bring that up because that was another piece that, you know, I wasn't going to the football games. I think I went to one football game. I worked as a student mm. resident firefighter to pay for my way through school. When, when you struggle with dyslexia, like you're not going to the football games. You're not going out late drinking. You're not partying with your buddies for a lot of other reasons, but for the big reason that you can't afford to waste time. You've got to really spend your time studying. Work harder. Yeah, which which changes the whole social uh, system, I guess, and experience of college. Yeah, well, my college um, mascot was the library. I went to UC San Diego. <laughs> and people think, we, we didn't have a football team, and people think it's a party school because it's right on the ocean, but it's extremely nerdy. Um, and you know, the, the library was like on every, you know, poster and everything, but, um, anyways, uh, so, um, 
you know, I mean, I know you had to just overcome all this adversity to be successful and, and you had to work harder. And I mean, so how do you how did it shape who you are today? Uh, because, you know, you, you had to have developed some some character traits by going through all that. And um, you know, so how, how do you think it's shaped you today and, and how you've been successful in the financial services industry? Well, you know, I started my business, as they say, on the street, uh, working for a big broker dealer that's famous for knocking doors. And mm. um, I, I have a dashboard I use every day with my team. And I have a picture up on that dashboard where we put through our tasks and our projects and different stuff we're working on, especially now that we're all virtual. And a picture of my a pair of shoes that I uh, wore out during that time. I mean, I literally... I uh, knocked about 9,000 doors building my business. Wow. And there's, you know, two, it was, in, it was, I don't know if it was impressive or just half crazy, but one <laughs> or the other. And um, the, uh, it, it was uh, that whole experience though. I mean, I looked at what I've learned through tenacity and the ability to listen, literally just not listen to the naysayers, right? I don't care what people think of me because great, I've been made, you know, you name it, I've had come at me in one way or another already, right? So mm. it, that, it, that ability to discharge rejection when it comes at you, that ability to work really hard and continue grinding uh, when things are difficult and they're tough, um, I would say are the two biggest um, oppositions to success. And that is not listening to the people that doubt you and not grinding hard when a lot of people give up right before they succeed. And mm -hmm. that ability to say, I know I can do this regardless of the circumstance. I can work through this and I can find success. And that's been just a really powerful, I, I would say two characteristics that I've developed over time because that's what I had to do uh, to survive. Like I'm not going to listen to people telling me I'm stupid because I know I'm not stupid and I'm not going to listen to the people saying that you're not going to be successful, nor am I going to give up before I succeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it helps a little that you're in the same camp as, you know, Charles Schwab and, uh, some of those others, Einstein. Um, so being a financial advisor involves a lot of licensing, test taking, you know, the CFP is a rigorous uh, certification, um, you know, research, uh, pouring over research. How did you overcome those challenges? Well, one of the things you really learn when you're in the world of dyslexia is you learn humility, right? And you learn to uh, understand where your strengths are and be okay with where your weaknesses are. And there's not a lot of room for someone who won't admit and own the weaknesses when it comes to dyslexia, because if you don't, it's going to be really difficult to get through it. So I surround myself with a team of people that know how to support um, where I'm weak and that where they're strong. And, and that's been really, I think, fundamental to success. When it comes to uh, the CFP exam, when it comes to the various certifications I've worked through over time, what I found with all those tests is that there's really only a series of questions that they're going to ask you. So you look at like the CFP exam and say, okay, well, there's 300 odd questions they're going to ask me. Those 300 mm -hmm. questions could have three to four different combinations of how they ask those questions. And so if you look at the stack they give you when you go through all the classes for the CFP exam, it's just like, you know, a two foot high stack of books and mm. I looked at those books and said, there's no way I'm going to read and process all that. That's crazy. 
so I had to figure out what I'm going to, I'm going to work with the end in mind as old Stephen Covey says, and uh, begin with the end in mind. And, and you say, okay, what are those 300 questions that they're going to ask me? And I'm mm. going to attack those questions and I'll yeah. use the content to support figuring out the three ways or four ways they can ask that question. And then in my brain, I'm just checking off. Okay. There's that question on tax basis. There's that question on, you know, annuity calculations, whatever it is. And, uh, then when you hit the test, it's just a matter of saying, okay, well, how are they going to ask the question on this test? And that really helps cut down on the level of reading. And so it's, it's really about focusing and being very optimized in how you study and being very direct in how you study, which ultimately is a gift, right? But it, it, it doesn't give you the leisure of being lazy and just reading the book and hoping it all works out in the end of the test. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it, it, talk to me a little bit about, you know, watching uh, charts and and graphs, you know, because a lot of this industry is, is all about that, right? The, uh, watching the markets, the price action. Um, it sounds like that's something that um, that you have a passion for. I do. And I think one of the gifts of the a mind and that's dyslexic is that it processes information differently. So mm -hmm. I have a very visual mind. Everything's very visual for me. And which also makes when I'm looking at it, a chart full of like I am right now of moving averages and candlesticks and resistance and support lines and Fibonacci lines that it gives me the ability to break that data down from a visual perspective. And it gives me an advantage, right? Because I can see it all very easily visually when a person who's dyslexic is ultimately how they have to figure out how to read, at least how I have in my experience. And it certainly seems what I've seen with others is you learn to read by seeing the word visual. You have to create a visual representation of the word. And that's what makes it so mm. exhausting to read is because you're, you have to slow down and literally see a picture of every word in your brain. There has to be a concept of it. Mm. And that becomes very taxing, very exhausting on the brain and slows you down in the reading process because you actually have to bridge where you're processing the reading and then you have to bridge over to the other side of the brain to make sense of that word. Well, you develop an ability, a superhighway uh, that allows you to communicate with the other side of the brain very quickly. And then that gives you an advantage when you start to see things visually, right? Because mm -hmm. things just make sense visually. So Every day at 5.30 a.m. on West Coast time, I'm up looking at the markets, starting to understand what's going on on all the various charts and beginning to process that, right? That I can then distill that into meaningful information for my clients and for myself when I'm helping make financial or investing decisions with them. And so it's, it's about saying, okay, I've, I've been dealt a certain deck in life, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the deck. I ain't changing my brain. I'm not rewiring it. I actually argued with the psychologist that... Um, uh, in, in college that said, Hey, you know, you you've got a, a pretty strong dyslexic issue here. Um, I argued with her that I rewired my brain. I ultimately, uh, accepted the fact that I probably didn't rewire my brain, but I just use, learned to use my brain in the most functional way possible, uh, mm -hmm. to get what I wanted out of life. And the, uh, so that's really the strength is visual, right? And so that my visual ability is really strong, I also see that like if I'm moving a, an object in the house or I'm moving 
you know, piece of furniture around the house, I can put it in place very easily. I never get let, lost. I can, I can know where I'm driving and look at it from like I'm in space and know it visually of where I am. And so those are all just gifts of that brain uh, that you can use differently. It's also why you see a lot of dyslexic people become really successful entrepreneurs because mm. they don't, they, they see things differently, right? They, they don't, they, they don't, the system doesn't work for them. So they learn to color outside of the lines in the system. And that's what ultimately breeds a really successful entrepreneur in a lot of ways because they have to see things differently to come up with different ideas and ways of doing things. Yeah, I mean, this is this is fascinating for me because I'm I'm getting more awareness of you know the phonemic issues. It's uh, it's fascinating. Um, well, I mean, one other thing that I thought was fascinating that you talked to me about, and I think that this is something that can be really educational, not just for our industry, but for society at large to think about. Um, this issue and and that is what you know what you pointed out about this um a, a prison in texas in huntsville texas uh 80 of these inmates at this prison were functionally illiterate and 48 percent of those 80 percent were dyslexic um, they found and so talk to me about that uh i mean why why is such a large population of incarcerated individuals uh, why are dyslexic? So this is interesting. And this is an area where I th I'm driving towards with a lot of passion and have the hope of creating a foundation around someday or supporting a foundation. And mm. that is when you, you think about my experience as a child and, and, you know, the teacher saying, okay, Darren, it's almost your turn to read. And, and I've just got this intense anxiety wash over me at the time, have no idea what those feelings are. They're a lot to handle. All I know is I just don't like that environment. I just don't want to be there. And ultimately what happens with children who are dyslexic is they buck the system. They say, I don't want to do school. I don't feel good in school. I don't feel safe in school. I feel like I'm dumb in school. I know I'm not dumb. So you take in, you take the ones that are actually really intelligent and just are dyslexic and you tell them that, Hey, school doesn't work for you and you don't belong here. Where are those children going to go? Well, those children are probably going to get involved in gang life. They're probably going to mm -hmm. get involved with uh, doing things that don't fit normal society senses of, uh, you know, normalcy. They're going to color outside the line. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of those children will eventually find themselves in the quote unquote system because that's where they get reward, right? They get reward for being creative and doing things differently. And if, if a child doesn't have a strong social um, and family support structure, that's where they're going to find themselves. And it makes all the sense. It's very logical. I fortunately had a very strong family structure. I had two parents who loved me. I had two parents that provided mm -hmm. for me. I had grandparents who cared about me. I had aunts and uncles who cared about me. I lived in a, a neighborhood that was, you know, middle class that, you know, I wasn't going to, it would be more difficult than not to get in trouble. I still found ways to get in trouble, I think partially <laughs> because of this, but, um, but I was given a lot of advantages in life because of where I was born in the family I was born into. And yeah. you can't underestimate another child born into a neighborhood that's, you know, not that, right? That mm. There's a lot of challenges. And a lot of the, the dialogue we're seeing as a nation right now and that we're having as a nation 
Absolutely. when you're born into these neighborhoods where you get support versus a neighborhood where you don't get support, that's going to, from a cultural element, really breed and, and create a different type of human being. Mm -hmm. And because I was given that, I was given that gift as well. But if you look at like a lot of these, so the study was done on 130 different Texas inmates. And what they ultimately found was that like 40, close to 48% of these inmates had a phonemic awareness issue, right? So mm. if you think about like, you know, as a society, we like to talk about, hey, we need to fight crime. We need to uh, deal with crime. And I, I can't help but think that we're attacking the symptom and not the issue. And I think there's a huge portion of society and crime that happens in society that is done by people who are bucked from the school system because it's not designed to teach a brain that's dyslexic. It's not mm -hmm. set up to breed someone or to help someone that doesn't have natural phonemic awareness that has to work really hard to get through that process. And if they don't have a family unit that can support them, if they don't have a community that can support them, they're going to find them their way into the system and mm. ultimately end up in a life of crime. And I'm really passionate about, you know, if there's a way that we can arrest that situation early on and say, look, here's a child that learns differently. I mean, we're not talking about small percentages here. We're talking about, you know, depends on how you estimate it, a third of the population struggles with phonemic awareness, which then could be attributed to quote unquote dyslexia. If we can start to teach differently and look at these children differently and realize that there's going to be a third of the population potentially that's going to need to learn differently than the rest of the population, that becomes powerful, right? That becomes really moving. Then we really start to see a change because now you've got a third of the population that isn't going to go out and look for other ways to get positive reinforcement from a life of crime or engaging in things mm -hmm. that society we don't find helpful. Yeah, I, I think that that's very so insightful. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, even after this podcast is over that hope, hopefully that this dialogue can continue in our society and um, that we can really learn from you and 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 from what you're talking about here um well we're just about a t out of time i'd like to thank my guest darren blonsky darren thank you so much for joining me and and just educating us on this issue it's been just eye-opening and uh, really interesting thank you so much you're so welcome thanks for taking the time to listen yeah, if you'd like to reach out to Darren or if you have any questions about his work or his life, you can reach out to him at Darren, D-A-R-E-N, at SonomaWealthAdvisors.com, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. And if you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at TransparencyWithDianaB at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there is healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.